A moment's prayer before the sermon. Let us pray. May the words that I speak now and the thoughts and the feelings that we all now experience be always acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. I want to share with you some thoughts about that gospel reading this morning, but I want to start somewhere else and come round to the gospel passage in a few moments, if I may. A week ago yesterday, I was uh, in Cambridge for the morning at a meeting there where I was part of a panel discussing a remarkable event which had taken place in late June. In late June, Pope Francis, who's currently in Cuba and the United States, as you may have heard on the news, uh, but in late June, Pope Francis visited the Italian city of Turin. Whilst there, he went to the Waldensian church in Turin. Now, the Waldensians are, are a group, a Christian church, who were founded about the same time as the Franciscans. They go back to the 12th century. Uh, like St. Francis, Peter Waldo was a rich man who became convinced that he should give up his wealth. He founded a group of travelling friars, round, preachers round about him, and they lived and worked among the poor. Uh, and... They and the Franciscans were both quite suspect to the Catholic authorities in those early years. And the result of history was that the Franciscans just about stayed within the Catholic Church by the skin of their teeth. And the Waldensians fell out of the Catholic Church by the skin of their teeth and were heavily persecuted for centuries after. There, in the roll forward a few hundred years, and in the mid-16th century, they held a democratic meeting and decided to join the Reformation. Uh, so they, they're a pre-Reformation reformed church, if you see what I mean. Uh, and they, their, their strongholds are in the high Alpine valleys north of Turin, going up to the French and Swiss border. Uh, Part of the persecution at times was that they were not allowed to worship in public. The Waldensians had been persecuted for centuries. Uh, as I say, they come from mainly from the area north of Turin originally, though they worked across the whole of Italy. And, so, and their missions, they went, as Italians did. So the Waldensians all over the world, including in this country, though not many here, but there are particular are Waldensians in South America and in Argentina in particular. While he visited Turin, Pope Francis asked to go and went to the Waldensian church in Turin. That was huge. Francis's own family come from the same area of Italy, north of Turin, they're Piedmontese, because he is, his family is Italian and uh, and therefore, he knew Waldensians in Argentina. Uh, and he has 
family, shared family history with them, I guess. Uh, so he went to the Waldensian church in Turin, which was a break on its own. But while there, being Francis, he actually, as Pope, asked for forgiveness for all the centuries of persecution. That act has moved Waldensians and Protestants generally in Italy deeply and thrown them into total confusion as well. Because as one Waldensian friend once said to me, we've, got it, we've become lazy now. We now think that if the Vatican's against it, we're automatically for it. And the Vatican's for it, we're automatically against it. And we've stopped thinking. He was being hypercritical of his own tradition that Waldensian minister. And if the Pope asks forgiveness and you give forgiveness for that and you've defined yourself in opposition to the Pope and all the Pope stands for, who are you afterwards? A similar thing happened to Baptists in Russia when communism collapsed in Russia. And Baptists who defined themselves as being underground and persecuted when they were no longer being persecuted, what do you do? Who are you? And how do you let go of all that stuff from the past? And the Waldensians have begun to ask some really interesting questions. One is, how can, since it wasn't... It isn't they now who are persecuted. How can they offer forgiveness on behalf of their ancestors who were? But if they can't, and they still live as if everything the Vatican stands for is persecuting them, they're trapped in their past... which is something about being trapped by your history, being trapped by your identity, and making things which are less important the most important thing in the way you think of yourself and think of the world and ultimately think of God. And so the meeting I was at in Cambridge was actually a group of people amongst the Waldensians and some Catholics as well discussing how on earth do we cope with what this Pope has done? Where does it leave us now? Where do we go? It's a really interesting thing for the Pope to have done because Protestants have a huge caricature of the Pope, with some justification, I have to say, but a huge justification of the Pope, that the Pope takes those biblical verses about Peter and the keys, as if popes have the right to forgive. So it's popes who have the power position who forgive others. What's this pope doing asking for forgiveness? In the passage you heard from the gospel, I told you we'll get there. In the passage you heard from the gospel, just before it, was the story of Jesus who's been teaching his disciples that now they're starting to see that he is God's Messiah, God's anointed agent, and that he is, uh, that he is the Son of God. 
He's also been teaching them that means he will have to be handed over to death. And they're finding that really difficult to cope with. And as they're walking along, the disciples, not able to cope with what Jesus has been saying, start arguing about trivia. Except they, it wasn't trivia to them. They're very human at this point. And Jesus has challenged them as to what they were talking about. And it turns out they are arguing about which of them was the most important disciple, which of them had the positions of power amongst the disciples, what the pecking order was in the group of disciples, who was the greatest. And Jesus tells them off effectively. And then he says, if you, if you wish to be great amongst the disciples, you need to be the least of all and the servant of all. You need to treat others as more important than you. And he takes a child and says, if you accept this child, and of course children were people who everybody thought at that time had no importance whatsoever. He said, if you treat the one that, you would, that we generally think of as being unimportant as being the most important then you're accepting me as well as that child. And in accepting me, you're accepting God. It's not your own importance that matters, says Jesus. It's not the pecking order. It's not the which of you has power over the others. It's not which of you can tell others what to do. It's not which of you will get the status and the rewards that matters. What matters is how you treat others who would otherwise be considered to be of no importance whatsoever or who would consider themselves to be of no importance whatsoever. It's how you treat them that matters. And then in the passage that we heard, which follows straight on, it goes a step further. Because one of the disciples, John, interestingly calls Jesus teacher. And elsewhere in the Gospels, teacher is the word that outsiders use for Jesus. Because that's what he obviously looked like if he didn't know anything. So the starting point for understanding Jesus was to think of him as a teacher. Uh, so this disciple, John, has not really got very far in understanding Jesus at all. So he's still thinking of him like people outside think of Jesus. Teacher, he says, we saw someone doing good in your name, releasing people from the evil that oppresses them. We saw someone doing that in your name, but they're not in our group. They're not doing what we're telling them. The Greek is, but they weren't following us, not they weren't following you, Lord, they weren't following us. John, who was one of the ones who asked who was the greatest, is still thinking of himself as the boss of a disciple group. If they're not part of our group, if they won't do what we tell them, they must be against us, mustn't they? They must be stopped, mustn't they? 
we try to stop him, says John. And Jesus says, don't stop him. Even if someone's not part of your group or working under your instructions, if they're doing the work of the kingdom, that's good. Let them. Then Jesus turns it round again and says, and if someone cares for you, they're caring for me. And Jesus goes on further, saying, Don't let things get in the way of the kingdom of God becoming real for human beings. Don't let petty things, which you think seem the most important things in the world, get in the way of God's will being done. And he uses these graphic Jewish images. Uh, if it's your hand which is getting in the way, cut it off. Your hand's not as important as the will of God, as God's love. He doesn't actually mean go around chopping people's hands off or your own. It's a very graphic Jewish way of talking. If it's your eye which is causing the problem and getting in the way, Pluck it out. But of course the real thing which has been getting in the way is not actually their hands or their eyes, it's their attitudes. What's really been getting in the way is all this, I'm more important than you. If you're not in our group, you're nothing. I'm having nothing to do with you. If you're not in our group and you're doing God's will, I'm still going to stop you. If you don't believe things the way I believe them, I'm going to kill you. We don't say that now, but if you look at how many Protestants were executed during the Reformation because of what they believed, and how many Catholics were executed by Protestants for what they believed, That tendency has been in the church all the time. Now, knowing what we believe and how we express what we believe is important, but it's not so important that we kill each other for it or that we stop other people serving the Lord and doing the God's will simply because they don't agree with us about Mary or whatever. If you let those attitudes stay in you, says Jesus, you're ceasing to be salt which seasons human communities. And if salt loses its saltiness, you can't get it back. Now, some commentaries, some literal-minded Christians get themselves in a right tiz at this point because, of course, chemically, scientifically, salt can't lose its saltiness. But, 
At the time of Jesus, and if you've ever been there, and look at the Dead Sea, we take the deposits that come out of the Dead Sea, which have salt in, which they used as salt. It wasn't just salt, it was salt in other deposits. And the salt could be washed out of that, and what you were left with would not be salty. So the picture makes sense to the people that Jesus was talking to. And he wasn't into the deep science of it. But if you lose the saltiness, how are you going to get it back? And the way you're going to lose the saltiness most is by the attitudes that you have. And so he ends by saying, have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. It takes you right back to the not stopping people who are not in your gang but are still doing the will of God. It takes you right back to not worrying about who is the greatest among you, who's got more status, who's best. And as the Waldensians found, if we start trying to live that way, we'll find it's a bit uncomfortable. Because we won't know where we are sometimes. Because we've inherited all these ways of looking at the world. Just like I've inherited, I'm a Lancastrian. I've inherited ways of thinking about people from Yorkshire. <laughs> Amen.